If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. MasterCard knows local businesses mean more than what they sell. DJ Jason Johnson's Eagle Feather Entertainment provides beats and fundraising. At Eat My Shortbread, Trisha Bauer is a baker and an uplifter. And at Caroline Lavallee's Boutique, you'll find both green products and a community hub. MasterCard has tools and resources to support small businesses like Trisha's, Jason's, and Caroline's. Learn more at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. Together, let's start something priceless. I'm Gabe Friedman, and you're listening to Down to Business. My guest this week was Michael McCain, the CEO of Maple Leaf Foods, one of the largest packaged meat and protein companies in the world. It's been a turbulent year for everyone, and Maple Leaf Foods is no exception. In April, three employees at one of its poultry plants in Ontario tested positive for the coronavirus. That was followed by dozens of cases at its other plants and at least one death. Its plant in Brandon, Manitoba has been connected to more than 50 cases and workers there called for the plant to be shut down and cleaned while asking for other protections such as testing and job security. Meanwhile, last quarter, Maple Leaf told its investors its sales growth in the last 12 months has been twice that of its peers at 9.1% but still unsatisfactory, and blame supply chain disruptions that have been amplified by COVID-19. McCain, a billionaire who is known for his ability to handle crises, told me that 2020 has generated new levels of anxiety and inspiration. Our discussion started with questions about meat consumption, moved into the company's progress towards offsetting its climate emissions, and branched into the challenges of coronavirus. The interview has been edited for clarity and brevity. Michael McCain, thank you so much for joining me on Down to Business today. Well, thank you for having me, Gabe. It's wonderful to be with you. You're the CEO of one of the world's largest packaged meat companies. And I'll just ask you something about your bio. Okay. Maple Leaf has a lot of brand recognition. I mean, among other products, I think people probably would recognize Schneider's or Shopsy's hot dogs or bacon, but but also a lot of vegetarians may recognize the Field Roast brand, which is the plant-based alternatives. How long have you been in this industry and, and how did you get into it? My, uh, my family's roots are in the food business going back for generations. Uh, my father and his brother uh, started the uh, McCain Foods organization. In 1995, my, uh, my uh, branch of the family acquired an interest of an owner-operator leadership position in the Maple Leaf organization. And uh, I've personally been uh, leading the organization uh, since that time for a a real transformational journey. And that brought us into the uh, protein space, specifically animal proteins. Really interesting. So we've seen plant-based alternatives to meat and cultured meat growing in popularity. And scientists are now saying the climate cost of pork, chicken, and beef is higher than beans or plant-based alternatives. Given that that's part of the trend, what do you see as the future of meat? We believe that uh, meat protein has been part of the human diet for several hundred thousand years, and we suspect it will be a significant portion of the human diet for the next hundred thousand years plus. Uh, We do not see that 
uh, going away. Uh, what consumers have told us clearly is uh, they uh, desire more protein in their diet, not less. They desire more selection in their uh, protein choices, which includes some balanced diet between meat protein and plant protein. And they are doing that for a combination of reasons, which include uh, primarily uh, health and nutrition, but also a you know a small collection of consumers uh, also are doing it for environmental and sustainability reasons. You know, we we feel because the Maple Leaf organization has made such a deep commitment to leadership in sustainability of protein that a balanced relationship between meat and plant protein is important both to consumers and their dietary needs, but also from an environmental perspective. That does not, however, lead us to the belief that the meat industry is going away. What it leads us to is that the meat industry needs to fix some of the underlying challenges that it has in producing meat sustainably, and we believe that's uh, entirely possible. Right. And I, I guess like part of the subtext is that I hear the biggest sort of funds in the world are increasingly talking about ESG or environmental sustainability governance. And one of the things you hear is that the greenhouse gas emissions, say, from a serving of poultry, which I think is the fastest growing part of meat, is like 10 or 11 times higher than for a serving of beans. And so I guess what I was wondering is whether or not you see these markets growing indefinitely or what sort of rates of growth you expect, even if people continue eating meat? No, we, we see it We see it globally growing at, uh, at significant double-digit uh, rates. We, we see our own business growing at 30% a year in the plant-based protein business. However, that's of a very small base. We do not, we see, and we see that as additive protein consumption, not alternative protein consumption. I mean, look, Gabe, the, the, the critics of the meat industry and its environmental footprint are not wrong. And we're not, we're not, saying they're wrong in any way. Uh, what we are saying is uh, much like if you were to look at the transportation industry and and their environmental challenges of the transportation modes that we have adopted to date, if your conclusion was everybody should walk to work, we think you'd probably come to the wrong conclusion. The better answer is fix the problem as opposed to uh, get rid of something that's been a part of the human diet for the last 100,000 years. And we believe that we believe there are answers that will mitigate, uh, significantly mitigate the environmental footprint of the meat industry. And we're pursuing that today. We are the Maple Leaf Organization, for example, today, en route to those solutions, is the very first large-scale food company, not just meat company, but food company in the world, to be carbon neutral right now, not aspirationally in the future, right now. What does that mean and how did you achieve that? Well, we've been working at it for well over five years. Uh, we followed the blueprint that most scientists and, and uh, experts would endorse, which is you know, a, a hierarchy of avoid, reduce, recycle, and, and finally offset. Uh, we adopted a very significant uh, emissions reduction goal in 2015 for 2025, which we are well on, the, on track of meeting. Uh, and that reduced our emissions by 25 odd percent to date, you know, on a blended average basis you know, around that level. We then have adopted at the same time, uh, one of 290 companies in the fall of 2019 
290 companies, all industries globally, to adopt science-based targets for additional reductions through 2030 of 30%, additionally 30% reduced by 2030 in scope one, two, and three emissions. So fulfilling our commitment to emissions reductions in a broad array of initiatives across the company has been central to that. And then finally, uh, utilizing a high-quality, fully verifiable, new vintage, local, and agricultural offsets to kind of close the gap of what's remaining. And that follows that hierarchy that experts have endorsed of avoid, reduce, recycle, and offset to achieve carbon neutrality uh, around the world. When you say offsetting, what are the offsets that you guys do? Well, we have a portfolio of them. Uh, We have a portfolio of them that uh, include things like regenerative agriculture. Uh, We have a number of them around biodigestion. Biodigestion, is that like composting? Yeah, it's a version of that. But ultimately, the interesting thing is, and I mean, if you're really deep into the science of uh, emissions, there's, there's technology available today in both food processing and meat processing, which actually can convert agriculture from one of the, one of the culprits or contributors to the emissions challenges that it is today. 35% odd of emissions come from the agri-food industry. Can pivot the, in, the entire industry from uh, being a, uh, the source or one of the major sources of the problems to to the solution to the problem if we, and as we are starting to evolve into things like regenerative agriculture and biodigestion and uh, technologies like that, which are emerging in the, in the agri-food industry. And it's got a very powerful effect on, uh, on the footprint that the industry maintains today and, and will further, you know, um, you know, uh, enhance, move our, position of carbon neutrality to, uh, into the uh, into the industry going forward. We're, we're really excited about it, actually. Yeah, it's a fascinating evolution. I want to pivot for a second to another topic, which is uh, the, the 2020. <laughs> um, it's been a tumultuous year. I mean, between the multiple waves of uh, the coronavirus pandemic to borders closing and normal trade patterns changing, what has it been like to run Maple Leaf in such a challenging time? Well, I would say, Gabe, that it's been an extraordinary blend between anxiety and inspiration. Uh, the anxiety of operating a business like ours, which is an essential service, in the middle of a pandemic, knowing that we need to continue to operate to feed our consumers around the world, but in the face of a pandemic that could put our people in harm's way, creates a tremendous amount of anxiety across the organization. Uh, To accomplish uh, those difficult challenges or competing challenges of feeding the world, we uh, adopted a, a collection of very, very robust protocols across our entire supply chain network. We did it really early. Like we were uh, incredibly early and aggressive adopters with a governance and oversight processes to ensure compliance to those uh, those aggressive protocols that I believe is both world class and leading edge. The outcome of all that to close the loop is we've had extraordinarily successful outcomes 
uh, of protecting our people, which was our number one priority for the last eight or nine months. And the commitment and the competence and the passion of my entire team to both protect our people as a number one priority and feed the world has been nothing but inspiring for me. I've been able to participate with them shoulder to shoulder. Their success has been an incredible inspiration for me. So we started in the space of anxiety, and I think we've ended up with a very high level of both pride and inspiration at uh, how well we've been able to navigate through this difficult time. I was looking over it, and Maple Leaf has had some COVID outbreaks in a number of facilities. And I think the the first one I saw was in April, which would have been early into this pandemic. And do you remember how you found out that some of your employees were infected and what your initial reaction was? Yeah. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, In the early stages, when we were at the height of our anxiety level and our commitment was First and foremost, the highest and number one priority is protecting the the health of our people. When we first experienced cases uh, at one of our poultry plants, at the time, we didn't know enough about our protocols or the virus itself to have confidence that we could adequately protect our people. So we closed the plant. In the face of that insecurity, we took the most conservative position and just simply closed the plant for a period of time until we had the confidence to open the plant up safely and protect our people. The other example more recently is in the Brandon facility in Manitoba. And in that location, they they had many outbreaks, but we actually had extraordinary confidence in our protocols in the plant. We did not, reviewing it every single case, did not have one case of evidence of workplace transmission. 100% of the cases were traced back to community spread uh, without workplace transmission. So that gave us full confidence in our protocols at that time that they were working, they were protecting our people, and in the face of community spread, we had many employees saying they felt the safest place in their entire lives was actually at work, not away from work. So uh, they're very, very different positions. To, to that point, though, there was also some employees I noticed who, uh, who I saw on the news who I think it was more contentious than, than that because there were also a number of workers who said publicly and to CBC and other big outlets that they didn't feel safe. And, and they, I think, petitioned the province to have tests before they went into work. And the province said it didn't have the testing capacity. So I don't think that happened. But I've reported on other companies that invested in private testing, like in mining industry. Was that something you've considered? Uh, We consider it every day. The problem with those testing protocols is that the efficacy of the test, uh, the efficacy of the test is so low from an operational perspective. In those rapid tests, for example, uh, the the, uh, effectiveness of the test, the sensitivity of the test is about 70% which means you're going to get 30% false positives and false or false negatives at any moment in time. So uh, it doesn't, uh, it, it just doesn't, it's just not viable operationally. The high, the highly sensitive tests, which are PCR tests, uh, they, they don't, they're not effective uh, for any kind of an infection that's occurred within say, arguably three to five days. And you don't get a, and you don't get an outcome for, 
uh, two to four days after. So the ability either to take a rapid test that is not effective or a PCR test that is effective, but it's untimely, doesn't, it makes it, you know, just, it, it's good for show. It's good for show. It makes it, creates a great narrative, but it doesn't do, it doesn't really protect our people. The best thing to protect our people is the robustness of the protocols inside the facility. And while, you know, I, I fully get when you've got 1,800 people employed in a particular location like Brandon, I, I have no doubt that there were some that would be more anxious than others. I get that. But the science, and the science is guided by our collaborative effort with public health and the CFIA, who helped us and collaborated in the, in the review of every single case and, got, and, and reviewed every component of our protocols, came to the exact same conclusion, which, which was no workplace transmission evidence across the board. So that gave us a tremendous amount of confidence. Uh, and I, I, I understand that there are, there's always anxieties with that, but following the science, that gave us the confidence. Yeah, I'm just wondering in a situation like that, the testing might mean that your workforce would get some false positives so people would have to stay home, but do you have to calculate the mental health and well-being of workers too in the sense that people are scared? I mean, you know, perhaps there haven't been any and the science hasn't showed that, but that also doesn't mean that there couldn't. No, for sure. But but I would tell you that there's that for just as many people uh, as might be anxious and scared, and we did take tremendous precautions to try and support them in their anxieties and their mental health to the very best of our ability. We had countless initiatives to support them. It's just as anxious to rely on a test that that has thirty percent false negatives, right? So. You know, they're all they're, they. If you get, if you say we're relying on your safety by a test that's got thirty percent false negatives, right? I, I, the science would say that causes me more anxiety than just being having rigorous protocols in the plant. So, yeah, you know, again, you know, we we have, I believe, made uh, made the safety of our people uh, the number one priority. We've had public health. Uh, scientists and professionals tell us that our playbook, which we've shared, you know, very openly, and, and they are encouraging us to share them with any other industry. So th this is a tremendous source of pride for us. Kid. Yeah. And so I know that we are running out of time and I do want to ask you just one more question, at least, but slightly pivot. I mean, we're not out of the woods yet. There's vaccines beginning to come. Where do you see this all going, and, and when do you think that conditions may return to more normal for your people? Will you guys be able to get vaccines early or anything like that? I, I honestly cannot, I cannot opine on that. We're going to follow the guidance of the government in this situation and the science, and, and the government has yet to be uh, you know, fully clear with, uh, with exactly what their vaccine rollout strategy is. But we will continue to be guided by the science, to be guided by the government recommendations and protocols, and to be guided by our principles of putting our people's safety first. So uh, that's going to define our future, but it's really way premature to, uh, to uh, kind of lay out exactly what that looks like at this stage. Yeah, for sure. I know that one of the things that Maple Leaf has been planning long before even the pandemic was investing $600 million or roughly around that amount into a new plant in London, which is going to be more efficient, 
even better for the environment, but will also result in the closure of three plants and some reductions in, in jobs. This is something that economists have raised that we may see technology come and reduce the amount of jobs because of the conditions the pandemic has created that you don't want people working so close together. Can you talk to me just a second about how this sort of concern may figure into your guys' expansion plans and how you think about it? Uh, well, th this concern that you raised, which is an entirely uh, worthy uh, anxiety and concern for all of society, where, where the role of uh, technology of all sorts uh, has the possibility of uh, displacing uh, jobs around the world. The fact is, uh, Gabe, that it has for 100 years been true, uh, dating back well before the Industrial Revolution, and it's uh, true if, and accelerated today. You know, first of all, our commitment is that we have to uh, participate in that because that's the essence of advancing your organization in productivity and your ability to compete in the marketplace. So for our financial sustainability, we have to participate in those evolutions that, that involve technology. I think society at large has a bigger challenge, again, dating all the way back to the Industrial Revolution and, and before, of how do the uh, consequences of the, that automation adjust to a new world? History has shown that the economies do adjust. They don't just adjust, though, in the same jobs, in the same roles, in the same industries. They tend to adjust with new roles and new opportunities in new industries or, or requirements in society. And I think that becomes a, you know, a, a, a real imperative for governments around the world to think through the transition into new economies. Things like uh, how do you support people, individuals in transition? How do you retrain uh, into transition? Uh, you know, where are those uh, new industries going to evolve and how do we make sure that they evolve here and not some other place, right? And those are, you know, very large industries that go well beyond the scope of, or very large topics, I should say, that go well beyond the, uh, the um, scope of Maple Leaf Foods, but I think they're really super important. And, you know, along the way, uh, our organization, for people that have, that have been displaced, we've done our level best to, to try and support them in transition as best we could. So hope that's helpful. It is. And I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Michael McCain. Thank you, Gabe. That was Michael McCain, CEO of Mississauga-based Maple Leaf Foods. Thank you for listening. This show's music and production were provided by Bryce Hall, editing by Yadula Hussein, and web support by Pamela Heaven. If you enjoyed this episode of Down to Business, you can share it with a friend and rate us on your podcast app. I'm Gabe Friedman, and until next week, you can get your business news at financialpost.com.